0: This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 15 verses 42 through 47, and these are the words that he pens. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, Jesus, should have already died. And so summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he, Jesus, was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main thoughts on your outline this morning. Several sub-thoughts come uh, beneath each of those. We'll be heavier on thought number one than we are on thought number two and three. That's by design and not by default. If you're taking notes, which I'd encourage you to do this morning, I think that you will retain more if you do. Write this down. We see first the boldness of a follower. We see the boldness of a follower of Christ. We just read the text, but let me... Uh, Get your attention back on your Bible there. Look at verses 42 through 45, when the evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a new character uh, in Mark's gospel here. Joseph tells us that he's a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph took courage, went to Pilate, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised that Jesus had already died. And so he summons the centurion. He asks the centurion to come to validate that Jesus is indeed dead. When the centurion validates that Jesus is indeed dead, he grants Joseph of Arimathea the corpse of Jesus. Let's talk for just a moment here about the day that Jesus died, specifically verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation... That is the day before the Sabbath. Mark is wanting us to know something about the day that Jesus died, about the timing in which Jesus died. Mark tells us that it was late in the afternoon, late in the afternoon, and on a specific or on a particular day. That specific day is the day of preparation. He gives us even more clarity when he says that day is the day before the Sabbath. Here's what you need to know, friends. The designation, the day of preparation, that designation, the day of preparation, it's used here in a technical sense or as a technical reference to Friday, which is the day before the Sabbath. We know the Sabbath takes place on Saturday. And so what's taking place here in our text is taking place on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, And since no one was allowed to work on the Jewish Sabbath, Friday was used to prepare for it. Hence the designation or the title, the day of preparation. Every pious Jewish person would have known that, but Mark's not writing to a Jewish audience. Mark is writing to a Roman audience here. So thus he explains for us. He gives us some explanation Mark also notes that evening had come. Evening referred to the hours between mid-afternoon, and that's somewhere in the ballpark of three or four o'clock and sunset, because we know that according to the, the Jewish uh, calculation of days, sunset began the next day, right? So it's midday already. It's somewhere between three and four o'clock on Friday, Saturday begins on sun, or at sunset. And Saturday begins the Sabbath. We'll talk about the significance of all this here in just a moment. What Mark wants us to understand, what he intends that we understand here, is that the shadows are lengthening and that time is very, very short if Jesus is going to be buried before the Sabbath. And that's very important. We don't have much time. It's already 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Sunset is Saturday. That's the Sabbath. So we have a small window of time The shadows are lengthening if Jesus is going to be buried before the Sabbath begins. The day that Jesus dies here is Friday. Let's talk about this new character in our text, Joseph of Arimathea. What do we know about this fella? What do we know about Joseph? Well, this is the only appearance of Joseph in Mark's Gospel. Joseph was likely a resident of Jerusalem, though he was from Arimathea. That's where his name comes from, Joseph of Arimathea. That's where he was born. That's where he came from. He's likely now a resident of Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that he was a wealthy man. If you kind of do a synthesis of the gospel narratives and we look at what all the gospel writers say about Joseph, we can glean a little bit uh, better picture of who he was. Matthew in Matthew chapter 27 tells us that he was a wealthy man, or he was a rich man. Mark here tells us that he was a respected member of the council. The council. uh, That word council is usually a non-Jewish designation for the Sanhedrin. Remember, Mark is not writing to a Jewish audience here. And so Mark uses the non-Jewish term, uh, council, uh, but we, what we know is that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling body of Israel. And the word respected here, he was a respected member of the council, or a respected member of the Sanhedrin. That word respected is not a mere title of office, But it's given in reference to Joseph's personal character as being a man of integrity. Joseph was a man who was blameless, not sinless, but had an upright, lived an upright life, a moral man. Luke tells us in his gospel that Joseph was a good and righteous man, Luke 23. Mark tells us here that that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God, which is simply to say that he, along with a plethora of other pious Jews of his time, were hopeful for the salvation of Israel and the introduction of the Messianic kingdom. And so Joseph was looking forward to all this. He was anticipating the coming of the kingdom. We know that Joseph did not approve of the Sanhedrin's decision and action to put Jesus to death. Several of the gospel writers tell us that. Luke tells us that in Luke chapter 23. That while the Sanhedrin decided at Jesus' trial that he should be put to death, this individual, Joseph of Arimathea, did not agree with them. He was not on board. He did not vote a hearty yes for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Two things were possible here. He was either there and present during that trial, and he was silent or he was not present when the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death. In any regard, we know that he did not approve, he did not rubber stamp the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. While Joseph didn't consent to the Sanhedrin's actions, we learn elsewhere, for fear kept him from that. Fear kept him from from wanting to be known, and so uh, Joseph kind of shrank back into the shadows when it came to his following of Christ, he was fearful of others. You ever been there? You've been fearful of what others might think about you if they know that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've lost your ever-loving mind, that you've jumped off the deep end, that you're, that you're just a part of some cult, or that you're just weak and you need some crutch to, pop your life, to prop your life up on so you're some follower of some antiquated 2,000-year-old dead man. What might people think if they really know that I have pledged allegiance to the Lamb? What would people really think about me if they knew that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength? We know that Joseph was fearful. And that that fear kept him from being a strong witness, at least prior to our text this morning, for the Lord Jesus Christ. But here... On this day, late in the afternoon on Friday, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Joseph courageously risked everything to obtain Jesus' body for burial. He risks everything in this courageous, bold move that he would go to Pilate and ask Pilate for the deceased body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God had raised up this distinguished council member, this this member of the Sanhedrin, and this secret disciple for a special and most important vocation. You see, the rest of the disciples of Jesus Christ had all fled, and even if they hadn't, those guys had absolutely no influence with Pilate. Unless Joseph had made this special request to Pilate on behalf of Jesus, Jesus' body would have been buried that night, likely in a common grave with the criminals or even thrown into the veil of Hinnom, which is the garbage dump outside the wall of Jerusalem. But in steps Joseph, in this act of courage, the Lord gave him courage. While he had previously been a coward, the Lord gave him courage to stand. Jewish law required that the body of an executed individual should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. And so God called forward this man, Joseph, at this appointed time, this friend of Jesus, though unknown as such to the world, and God gave him confidence. Joseph dared to express sympathy for Jesus even after his death. And so he went boldly. The text actually says begged. The original Greek there is he begged, Pilate, for the body of Jesus. This move required incredible courage. I mean, Jesus had just been condemned as a criminal, as as a criminal guilty of treason. He was mocked. He was spit on, he was crucified, he died the death of a slave, the most guilty wretch. And yet Joseph goes and asks for his body. To pledge allegiance to Jesus even after his death was a demonstration of courage, but it was proof of sincere and fond affection for Jesus as well. I think as we study verse 43 here, there's, there's lots of points about courage that we can pick out here. This was a courageous move. Look at verse 43. Find it there in your Bible. Joseph of Arimathea, we know a little bit about him now. A respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage, Mark writes here. Friends, God took care to make sure that this courage of Joseph remained eternally pinned in his word. This isn't just some abstract detail that we're to gloss over here. God wanted us to know that this was a courageous man, and he showed his courage by going into Pilate. He went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The word courage there, "talmao," uh, is the Greek. It means to assume resolution. It means to make up your mind to be settled and steadfast. It means to dare or to to assume a bold heading. It's it's this resolve. Joseph had previously been uh, had a lack of courage, but now God has given him courage. A few things here that I want you to note about courage. uh, You can write this in your uh, blank there. Courage initiates. Courage initiates. The text actually says, and came Joseph of Arimathea. Of course, your Bible probably just says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. The Koine Greek there says, "...and came Joseph of Arimathea." See, courage initiates. Joseph came to Pilate. Secondly, we see that courage resists evil. Courage resists evil. Remember, Joseph was the one who did not rubber stamp the Sanhedrin's desire to put Jesus to death. He did not condone their decision and their action. Courage resists evil. Courage resists evil. Third, courage aligns itself with God's priorities. Courage always brings itself into alignment with God's priorities. Look at verse 43 there. Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He aligned himself with God's priorities. Fourth, courage overcomes a fear of opposition. It overcomes a fear of opposition. Joseph took courage and he went to Pilate. I mean, Pilate, as we'll learn here in just a few moments, could have actually charged Joseph with treason for asking for the body of the one who had been condemned to die for treason. Courage overcomes a fear of opposition. And then lastly, courage by definition acts boldly. Joseph asked for the body of Jesus. He didn't just come uh, into the presence of Pilate, which alone is a fearful thing, but he acts boldly in asking for the body of Jesus. Courage initiates, it resists evil, it aligns itself with God's priorities, it overcomes a fear of opposition, and it always acts boldly. It acts boldly. Friends, let me just press pause there real quick. How, How bold are we when it comes to living out, displaying our faith in Jesus Christ. Remember the old kid's song, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Even if it cost me, even if it cost me. Courage strides forward even in the face of assumed opposition. Opposition. Even if it cost me, be what it may. My allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. No turning back, no turning back. For Joseph to ask for the body of Jesus was a bold or courageous move for a number of reasons. Uh, One, Joseph himself, as I mentioned a moment ago, could have been charged with treason. Remember, Pilate had been manipulated into killing Jesus by the Sanhedrin. It doesn't mean that Pilate was not culpable for his actions here, but but Pilate was was at least unsettled in the whole proceedings, unsettled in the whole matter of the trial to condemn Jesus. Yes, Pilate was was involved, but in the end, Pilate couldn't find a good reason to kill Jesus, and so he really didn't want Jesus' blood on his hands. I mean, we, we see as we, as we go back and study through that text a couple of weeks ago, it almost seems as though Pilate's trying to wiggle out. He's trying to, trying to back out of uh, the, the desire to crucify Jesus. It was the Sanhedrin, it was the Jewish ruling body that instigated the crowd to petition Pilate to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so Pilate, a smart man... If you can remember back, he he asked the clamoring crowd, then what shall I do with this king of the Jews? If you want me to release Barabbas for you, then what do I do with this king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And then Pilate said to him, why? What evil has he done? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. And in the end, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. And so in a, in a weird uh, play of events here, while Pilate is culpable for his final decision, he really didn't want the blood of Jesus on his hands, but was manipulated by the Jews. The Jews were the ones that incited the crowd, Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Crucify him, crucify him. And so how does all this play out now on Joseph? Well, it's very possible that that Pilate is really frustrated now. That the sting of being manipulated is, is very raw in Pilate's heart and in his mind. And so when Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks for the crucified dead body of the one who was killed for treason, it's very possible that Pilate could have taken out his frustration on Joseph and charged him for treason or with treason as well. And so you have the potential charge of treason, why else was it a bold move for Joseph where well, you have the potential removal from the Sanhedrin? Remember, Joseph was a respected council member. He was a, a well-thought-of member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And so his request amounted to an open confession and personal loyalty to the crucified Jesus, which would have doubtless incurred his associates' hostility. The rest of the Sanhedrin would have been irate at Joseph for his request, and he could have been stripped of his position. Why else was it bold lastly here well, you've got the potential of becoming ceremonially unclean? I mean, think about this. Joseph is dealing with a dead body here, which to the Jews was very taboo, but it's very possible That if Joseph did not bury, did not prepare the body and bury Jesus very, very quickly, in just the couple hour window before sundown, then he would have been guilty of working on the Sabbath, which would have made him ceremonially unclean, which meant that he could not have participated in Saturday's Sabbath. Do you see what's at stake here? And so it's no no minor detail to be glossed over when God himself inscripturates for us the reminder that Joseph of Arimathea, though he was a sinner in many ways, and at one time only a secret follower of Jesus, more of a coward than a courageous man, at this point in time, at this hour, God raised him up, gave him the courage, and he stood. I love that. I love that. Perhaps it's true that some of us need more of a backbone to stand for the Lord Jesus. Number one, there on your outline, we see the boldness of a follower. The boldness of a follower. Look at verses 44 and 45 there. We see a Pilate's surprise here. Surprise, surprise. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, Jesus, should have already died. And so Pilate summons the centurion, and he asks him whether or not Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion, when it was validated, when it was confirmed that Jesus was dead, he, Pilate, granted the corpse to Joseph. Interesting here, Pilate was amazed. The word means to be filled with wonder or to be astonished. Pilate was astonished that Jesus had already died. And his astonishment is explained when we we remember that individuals who were crucified normally lasted for two or three days on the cross before they died. And so when word gets back to Pilate that Jesus has already died, he's scratching his head and he's saying, really? Really? How how can this be? And so to find out if the report is true, he he summons and questions the centurion, likely the same centurion, likely the same Roman officer here that was mentioned back in verse 39, the the one there at the foot of the cross. Pilate summons him, and he asks him whether or not it is true. Mark's inclusion of this particular detail here would have highlighted to his Roman readers, that's who he's writing to, by the way, that Jesus' death was indeed confirmed, and it was also confirmed by a Roman official. Friends, there, there have been no shortage over the years of claims that Jesus didn't really die, uh, that Jesus just lapsed into a coma there on the cross, his body was taken down, he was put into the, the hewn-out stone uh, tomb, and that later he came to And he never did really die as a substitutionary sacrifice on Calvary's cross. Foolishness. That's utter foolishness. And so to confirm this without a shadow of a doubt, Mark includes for us here in his gospel that Jesus' death was confirmed, it was validated, and it was not only confirmed and validated, but it was confirmed and validated by a Roman official who would have had absolutely no dog in the fight in claiming anything other than Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. And so once Pilate is assured that Jesus is dead, Pilate grants, you'll see that word there, Pilate granted Joseph, that means to freely give, means he did not require a fee, he didn't charge him for the body of Jesus, He freely gives or granted Jesus' body to Joseph. Pilate's favorable response to Joseph, to Joseph's request, it was exceptional. And perhaps again it arose because Pilate felt in his heart of hearts that Jesus was really innocent. Again, Pilate's culpable. I'm not trying to take him off the hook here. But maybe in his heart of hearts, when everything is said and done, perhaps Pilate really does believe that Jesus was innocent. It's also possible that Pilate agreed to give up the body of Jesus because he felt confident that the crucifixion had had put an end to any revolutionary tendencies uh, that would have resulted uh, from Jesus' followers. And so maybe just the, here you can have Jesus' body because now that he's dead, it's likely that no one else is going to rise up because they've seen what we've done to Jesus, and if they do, we'll do the same. And so, sure. Sure. You can have it. You can have it. Whatever the case, it seems to have been a very gracious act. Number two, write this down, the burial of the Savior. We see the boldness of a follower, and then we see the burial of the Savior. Find verse 46 there in your Bible. And Joseph bought a linen shroud... And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Joseph undoubtedly had servants help him accomplish this. As a matter of fact, John's gospel in John chapter 19 tells us that Nicodemus uh, was there as well. Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. So here you have Joseph and Nicodemus, at least, preparing Jesus' body for burial. After Jesus' body was removed from the cross, it had to be prepared, and it had to be prepared correctly. They didn't just take Jesus down and and wrap him up and stick him in the grave. They prepared his body according to Jewish tradition. First, Joseph bought fine linen, fine linen. We're sparing no expense here, and Jesus deserves it. Joseph and Nicodemus would have used this fine linen to wrap Jesus' body very tightly. Uh, secondly, these two fellows here uh, would have wrapped uh, spices. Uh, and, and various other aromatic things in the folds of the wrapping. As they're wrapping Jesus, uh, they would have put spices there uh, in the folds of those wraps, specifically a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Matter of fact, John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds worth in weight that were used to prepare Jesus' body. Fourth, the body was placed in the tomb. See, all this took place according to Jewish customs here. It's interesting to note here, too, that there may be a harking back to a previous picture uh, in our study of Mark's gospel. All the detail about the linen cloth in verse 46 takes special significance in Mark, perhaps on account of a scene that took place earlier. If you can remember back to Mark chapter 14, that was a scene uh, before Jesus is arrested in which a young man flees the arrest and leaves his linen garment laying on the ground. Exact same language is used here. Jesus is is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, that night. And here comes this this individual. He's unnamed. Some commentators think it actually may have been Mark, and so Mark left his name out because he was the one that ran away. We don't know for sure. But this unnamed individual, uh, this this man, comes, and when Jesus is arrested, he flees in such a haste that his linen garments drop to the ground, and he leaves them behind. He leaves them behind. You see, Mark may have intended his readers to notice that the clothing that the young man dropped anticipated the same death attire that Jesus would be wrapped in after Joseph took his body down and prepared it for burial. You see, back in Mark chapter 14, a young man dressed for death and in burial clothes escapes, leaving those clothes on the ground. But Jesus, Jesus does not escape. Those clothes are put on him, and he's buried. He's buried. Friends, no tomb or burial site is more revered and recognized than the tomb in which Jesus was buried. The sacrifice of Joseph became a memorial of sorts for the triumph of the risen Lord. You see, this tomb, which was likely Joseph's own tomb, commentators debate about that, but it's not worth debating over, uh, Joseph was a rich individual. He was a wealthy man. Only wealthy individuals had tombs that were, that were dug out of or carved out of limestone rock. And so it's very likely that Joseph put Jesus' body in the tomb that he had purchased for his own death. He sacrificed his tomb for the body of Jesus, which he had likely purchased earlier for his own death. We see the burial of the Savior. Uh, Lastly, write this down this morning. And just a few more things to say here. We see the beauty of devotion. The boldness of a follower, the burial of the Savior. And then we see the beauty of devotion here. Find verse 47 there in your Bible. It says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Two women who had witnessed Jesus' death it says they saw, uh, a technical rendering here is they were observing, they were observing with interest where Jesus was buried. Apparently the other women who were around, uh, around the cross there on Calvary's Hill had returned home to prepare for the Sabbath, a day in which they rested. But these two women here are memorialized in our text as having come to the tomb where Jesus laid and they watched there intently. The Greek verb there also has the idea of guarding. So devoted were these women. So in love were they with their Savior that they stood there after everyone else had gone and guarded, and guarded his tomb. You see the beauty of devotion here. The affection of these ladies is, uh, is just wonderful. In all the trials and sufferings, uh, of their Lord, these ladies have stuck with him through and through to the very end. With true love, they followed him to the cross as near as they could come, as, as near as they were permitted, permitted to come. And in his last moments, they followed him when he was taken down from the cross uh, by Joseph of Arimathea. And after everyone else is gone, they're still here. The strong, the mighty, the youthful, the disciples even had all fled. But these ladies never forsook Jesus, even in his deepest humiliation. I love that. I love this picture. This is the nature of true love. It's strongest. Love is strongest in such scenes. You see, while professed attachment will abound in prosperity... Uh, We're we're very eager to attach ourselves to other things or other people in times of prosperity when everything seems to be going well or when that person is someone to be admired. You see that? Professed attachment will abound in prosperity. It will live most in the sunshine. But it's only genuine love that will go into the darkest shades of adversity and flourish there. And we see these ladies standing guard. At the tomb. In scenes of poverty, want, affliction, and death, love shows itself to be most genuine. We see it here in these ladies. Friends, with with this whole scene here that we've just looked at, with the whole text that is in front of us, the tragedy of Jesus' ministry seems complete. From a human perspective, of course, we live on the other side of the grave. These individuals did not. And so from their perspective, from a human perspective, it seems as though the tragedy of Jesus' ministry has come to a close, that everything is complete, the hero is dead, his disciples have fled, and he's buried only through the piety and generosity of a fellow named Joseph, while a few ladies here look on somewhat hopelessly that Their Lord has died. The friends, we know, and as the next scene proclaims clearly, we'll see it next week, that Jesus' ministry is not a story of tragedy. This is not the end. It's the crucified and abandoned Jesus who is, a, who is raised from the dead. He is raised from shame. He is raised from this apparent tragedy. And thus, God's raising of Jesus was the vindication of the one who was vilified. Friends, in the end, when everything is said and done, the hero does win. He wins victoriously. Death could not hold him down. Death could not keep him. Yes, he died. He had to die. You go all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we see that the wages of sin is death. That didn't come to us in Romans. The wages of sin is death came to us in Genesis for in the moment that you eat of it you will surely die. And we see that God wasn't he wasn't pulling punches. He wasn't kidding. Someone has to die. And the glory of the gospel is that the innocent is crucified for the guilty. The innocent dies for the guilty. But he rises again, victoriously. And he sits this morning Yea, this very moment at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Friends, I want to close this morning just by asking you how you respond to the message of the cross. How you respond, yeah, we're done with notes, you can close that. How do you respond to the message of the cross? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that there are three responses to the message of the cross one he tells us that the cross is offensive to some people paul calls it a stumbling block matter of fact that word stumbling block comes from the greek word scandalon it's where we get our our word scandalous or snare to be trapped up or tripped up to the jews the cross was a scandal They could not conceive of the Messiah being nailed to a cross, and so they literally literally stumbled over the cross. But friends, that's that's not just the response of of some Jews. That's the response of many in our world today, that the cross is nothing more than a stumbling block for you. Secondly, Paul tells us that the cross is foolishness to some. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul tells us, that the message of the cross is foolishness. The word foolishness—that's where we get our—it's uh, it's actually the Greek word "moria." It's where we get our word "moron" or "moronic." To some people, thinking about a crucified Savior is absolutely moronic. It's insane. It's insane. Is—is is the message of the cross a stumbling block for you? Is it an offense for you? Is it foolishness in your mind as you consider it? If so, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Unless, like Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians one twenty four, you come to a point by faith and repentance where you see the cross as an object of power and wisdom. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Paul says that those who have grasped the true message of the cross understand that it is not weak or foolish. Instead, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God is displayed at the cross. As sin is dealt with, God's wrath and fury displayed, Jesus drinks it down to the dregs every last drop. God's power is displayed, but his wisdom is displayed as well because we see a substitutionary sacrifice. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the cross displays the power of God and the wisdom of God for your salvation. There's no other way. Other than the cross. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Interpretation, you can't go over him, around him, or under him. You must come through him. I beg you this morning. I beg you for the sake of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, repent and believe. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin and turn your face toward Christ. Receive his mercy and grace, full and free, accomplished at Calvary's cross for you. But you must receive it. To those who received him, John tells us, he gave the right to become children of God. Is the cross offensive to you? Is it a stumbling block to you? Is it foolishness to you? Or do you see the cross as the power and wisdom of God? If you do, therein lies forgiveness, full and free. Full and Free. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, what a text we have here in front of us as we study the burial scene of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you for the, the details that you have left and scripturated for us. Thank you for what we learn about Joseph. Uh, we know that Joseph is, uh, is not the one that we are to set our, our eyes on. We're to set our eyes on Jesus uh, the one who, who is ultimately courageous, the one who f- fixed his face like flint toward Jerusalem and never erred a step in that direction through his life and ministry. But Lord, I pray that you would encourage us this morning as we, as we see uh, the boldness of Joseph. I pray that you would encourage us to stand for the Lord Jesus, to have a, a boldness and a bulldog tenacity when it comes to being a light and shining bright for Christ. Father, I pray if there's any person here this morning that doesn't know Jesus savingly, uh, that they would repent of their sins, that they would turn from their sins, and they would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive new life, that they would become a new creation in Christ, the old gone, all the sin atoned for, all the guilt and shame wiped away. Lord, we can be free of that in Jesus, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness that has been granted to us uh, by Jesus, Christ through faith God would you do that supernatural work among us this morning Pray as we leave here we would leave here with our sights fixed firmly and squarely and solely exclusively on Christ who is the captain of our salvation Lord help us to glorify him in all that we say do think all the intentions motivations of our hearts this day and we pray these things in Jesus name